0: This is an ABC podcast.
1: Naomi Moura is a stand-up comedian. Naomi's family are from Lebanon originally, which has people from a whole lot of different religious traditions. But instead of being brought up as a Sunni or Shia or as an Orthodox Christian or a Maronite Christian or as a Jewish person, Naomi's family were Jehovah's Witnesses. And Jehovah's Witnesses are pretty distinct from mainstream Christian denominations. They believe the destruction of the current world system at Armageddon is really close at hand and that the establishment of God's kingdom on earth, as they see it, is the only solution for humanity. And this meant that Naomi grew up at a distance from people outside the faith. And like her parents, she expected the world to end at any given moment and that it wasn't going to be pretty. And then, Naomi says, she woke up and she left the Jehovah's Witnesses, but she lost quite a lot in the process, and she was shunned from the only community she'd ever known, and for a long while she became something of a stranger to her father. But it turns out that when you no longer think the end of the world is nigh, well, then you can start thinking about the future again, and you have to figure out who you really are. Hello, Naomi, welcome.
0: Hi, Richard, thank you.
1: Naomi, when I was a kid, I thought we were all going to die in a nuclear holocaust. When, when you were a kid and you saw pics of the end of the world, what did those pictures look like?
0: Well, um, I guess they were a bit less nuclear and more kind of fire raining down from heaven. Um, so there was always pictures in materials when they were uh, wanting you to kind of picture what Armageddon looked like. There was fire coming down from heaven, buildings collapsing, and almost always a group of people who looked... Modern. I don't know. They look, you know, they were tattooed. They were wearing tight clothes. It was very, like, it was meant to indicate, you know, bad people. Hipsters. Yes, hipsters. Lots of uh, fire coming down from heaven and buildings collapsing. So, yeah, you kind of got the indication that if you looked like these people, you were probably going to die at Armageddon.
1: And what were you told would happen to faithful Jehovah's Witnesses in that moment of tribulation?
0: Well, there's a bit of a lead up to the actual Armageddon, which I weirdly found more terrifying than the Armageddon itself. So what I was taught was that you would have this period called the Great Tribulation, where the government would come after Jehovah's Witnesses and ban them and everything would be done in secret. And if you were discovered, you could be tortured and you would be persecuted. I remember spending quite a bit of my childhood thinking, I don't know if I'm gonna hold up to torture and I used to think about what kinds of torture I might do okay in and what time what kinds of torture I definitely would struggle with. And so um that was a period that's freaked me out. But when Armageddon came, what they believed is that God would protect his people and others would be destroyed but not Jehovah's Witnesses. And then after Armageddon the the job was to kind of clean up the earth. There's a real emphasis on how special you are being in this group because I think we all have that feeling that we want to be, you know, f- feeling special. It's just this level of specialness brings upon good things and bad things. And the bad things were always before the good things that would eventually come.
1: So the tribulation was going to be like a test for you and for other people. Yes. Yes. To see if you'd fall under questioning, if you like.
0: Exactly. Would you give up your brothers and sisters, you know, in that scenario? And if you did, like at any point, you could just be lost. You know, this is, this is that kind of under, underlying anxiety the whole time. You could be doing something at any point, which would mean that you would die at Armageddon, even in those last sort of few stages. So I always, you know, when I was feeling good, I, I'd think, well, I'm, I'm sure God won't test me so far that I'm not going to make it. But if, if you felt low at any time, you would think, that's, that's typical. That's something that would happen to me, you know. I'd live a really good Jehovah's Witness life and I'd get right to the end and then I'd succumb because they're trying to pull off my my nails or something. I just couldn't handle it. So, I don't know. I, you, you never really felt good enough and that was probably a good state to have followers in.
1: So, you really thought about this all the time when you were little?
0: yeah. Well, it, it's meant to motivate you, Richard. It was meant to be motivating. Like, you're meant to think, oh, you know, this is awful, um, but that's okay because Armageddon's going to come. Or or if you're going to be positive about it, you'd be like, we need to save people from Armageddon. So yeah, that that is quite front of mind. And as a child, you're looking at a lot of imagery. Your imagination is wonderful at that age. And, you know, you can really get carried away in the drama of it all, thinking, gosh, this is going to happen. And, you know, it could happen at any time. So I remember when I was younger thinking, what if I'm separated from my parents? I don't know how I would kind of go with that.
1: So if you think this is about to happen any moment yeah. and that your group is the only group with the knowledge and understanding of what's about to happen yeah. and everyone else is either too wicked or too stupid to see the revealed truth, what what does that mean when it comes to interacting with the rest of the world, the people who don't accept the truth of what's being put to you as a young Jehovah's Witness?
0: Yeah, it's not great. It doesn't set you up for connection because what happens is you feel either pity where you want to help them, so you preach, right? That's your solution, that that people deserve to know that. So there's that element of pity, I guess. And on the other side, there's slight fear because you feel that they don't know the way of life that you're supposed to live um, to get to you know to get through Armageddon and get to the paradise. So, what they tell you is that you should fear people that live a, a different life or a life that God wouldn't approve of because they can influence you to live that way and that would ruin your chances. So there's a sort of combination of what you know a number of things that will make you put everybody else who isn't a Jehovah's Witness in your life at arm's length because you're kind of half scared of them and half feel sorry for them. And actually, when I was quite young, I remember thinking, but these people are, are good. Like, how could God destroy people that are good? And, and I I think when you start to wake up to what, what some of that reality is of, like, destroying everyone but Jehovah's Witnesses, that's a lot of good people. And I just couldn't get my head around why that would happen or how. And and I think that, that did motivate me for a while to, to want to, to tell people so that they weren't going to be destroyed
1: some years ago Naomi, i interviewed a woman who'd grown up in this fundamentalist cult and they lived in their own community and she said that one afternoon she came home from school and everyone was offered a meeting and so there was no one around and she thought oh the raptures happened and i've been left behind oh, everyone else has gone up to heaven but i've been left behind now, i wonder if you got any nasty scares like that when you were little
0: Nothing as dramatic as that, but what happens when you watch the news, <laughs> and I certainly think Jehovah's Witnesses and other religions, perhaps you know, including my parents, watch everything that's happening now, like i mean I don't believe in I don't believe in the end of the world, but i could I could be convinced watching the news at the moment that actually things aren't great, you know there's so much um happening a lot of which is described in the Bible, you've kind of got your pestilence and you've got war and you've got, you know, all those things that they say is a lead up to the end of the world. So I don't know if there was one big incident, but even now, if I'm talking to my mum, she will sometimes, you know, refer to, this has got to be it, right? This has got to be it because this is crazy, the world that we live in. And, you know, there's that sort of small voice in me that's like, yeah, it is kind of crazy, but... I haven't reached the same conclusion.
1: So if you think the end of the world is now, and and like around the corner, like it's going to be arriving in a day, a week or a month, does that mean you just don't bother with having a career or planning for a career or planning for a future?
0: It's a really big thing, actually. There is absolutely no encouragement, not even just to have a career, but to have an education. So Jehovah's witnesses actively discourage further education, in any way so for me what that meant was I was in year ten was when I left school, so I was sixteen. What was the point of a HSC if you weren't gonna go to university was the view at that point in my life. And now I really liked school. It wasn't that I wasn't enjoying it or, you know, wasn't sort of getting good results. I just was literally if Armageddon comes tomorrow, rather than preaching, you'd be furthering your own education. And why do that when you've got the rest of living forever on earth? to do that which is what we ultimately were told was going to happen so yeah sure enough I left school at 16 I I did a a short course and then the whole point of that was to work part-time in anything to supplement my career which was at that point to preach full-time so I was preaching 90 hours a month that they call that pioneering I think now that the number of hours has changed, but that principle is still there. We should be spending these last days trying to convince as many people as possible to be saved when Armageddon comes.
1: What are some of the other core beliefs of Jehovah's Witnesses? How do they feel about the government, for example?
0: Oh, well, they take a very neutral stance, is what they would call it, so they don't vote, they don't go to war, they don't carry arms in any way, so that kind of rules them out of you know, joining the army or the navy or anything like that. So in countries where that's mandatory, they will go to prison rather than go to army service. They don't vote. So in this country, every time it was voting time, you would have to write a letter to say that you're not going to vote because of your religion. I didn't even really register governments or democracy, or that I I could choose, you know, who was in government at all. Um, And that was not really discussed at home much. My dad had views, but it wasn't really like, who should we vote for, or this government is terrible, and this one is great. And one of the weirdest things I remember after I left was standing at a poll booth in Sydney, trying to vote. And I mean, objectively, even if you were not a Jehovah's Witness, those forms are something else. I just was like, this is like a scroll. This is like an ancient scroll I'm supposed to try and figure out. I, I, you know, I just hadn't done the research. I hadn't really understood who was what and what it all meant. It's quite an overwhelming and you feel really stupid, like you're like an adult, but you're, you're walking amongst, you, you look like you're, you're supposed to know, but you just really don't know. And so there's quite a, a big gap of knowledge there.
1: So if there's a fair bit of shunning of the outside community, though, does that mean within the community, what's the feeling like? Is, it, is there a lot of warmth?
0: Oh, yeah. I mean, and I think if you talk to different Jehovah's Witnesses, they might have different experience. But my experience was, we call it being love-bombed. Do you know what I mean? Like you could, if you rocked up now to a Jehovah's Witness meeting, you would be love bonds. People would come up, they'd introduce themselves, they'd check in to see how you were. They would, you know, follow up. They'd want to keep in touch. Like, they create such a tight knit community. So when you're in it, it's like the warmth of a I don't know, like a, a warm thing. But if you start to do anything which would give them the impression that you were suddenly not someone who would be good to hang out with the water very quickly starts to go cold you're still in it but you will you will feel distance and then obviously that just turns to ice as you decide to leave so it kind of there's different levels of inclusion in that warmth but they do create a very tight community i know that my my family contribute quite a lot to that community. Like my mum definitely looks out for the older people in the congregation. She definitely supports people that are struggling in their lives. Like she she will go and pick people up and take them and not just related to the church, but just, just to have in their lives. So there's a real kind of tight-knit community. And I think as immigrants in Australia, I think my parents benefited from that automatic community you know that you don't have to really make and you feel safe in it
1: so how old were you Naomi when you started going door to door handing out copies of the watchtower
0: we would have always gone even if we were in the pram like with our parents so we would have gone when we were the whole the whole our whole childhood but I remember talking at the door for the first time when I was nine
1: and what did people see when they opened the door to (laughs) little Naomi what did they see when they looked at you Naomi in those days
0: like i don't know like a very sort of conservatively dressed earnest young kid i didn't feel as young as i know i would have looked um i think i felt like i knew what i was saying i felt i mean that's something i really miss it's weird to be a child and be so certain like i was so certain this sort of confidence that was un, you know unquestioning Uh, so i Although I was nine, I suppose I felt like I I knew best in that situation, which is so stupid.
1: And were you trained to do it? Were you actually sort of given lessons on how you should go about this?
0: Yeah. So, Jehovah's Witnesses meet three times a week and you've got your typical Sunday talk, you know, where there's a man that stands and gives you a, a talk on a particular topic and you study quite a lot of their publications in these meetings. But one of the three meetings is specifically to help you Get better at preaching. So, part of the kind of getting ready is you'd be given a a talk topic and some, you know, passages from the Bible, and you would have to write a talk, a five minute talk on a particular topic. But the religion is very gendered. So, men would write talks and they would talk directly to the audience. But Thanks to the Apostle Paul, uh, women were not allowed to talk directly to the audience. So, actually, when when we wrote our talks, it would have to be that you would write a conversation that you would have with another woman on stage. And
1: now you're a stand up comedian, which is about the most direct form of talking directly to people on stage. That's that's pretty amazing.
0: As a big mouth woman, it's quite frustrating, I have to say. Um, So, I finally got my moment. Yeah, thanks. It's good.
1: So, how did your parents become? Jehovah's Witnesses? Were they converted or were they born into it?
0: One one of each. So my father was born into it. He's like third generation born into it.
1: Born into it in Lebanon? Like I never knew. Yes, like I know there's a patchwork quilt, the religious traditions there, but I didn't know Jehovah's Witnesses were so active in, in Lebanon.
0: They're active everywhere. I think Truly, they're as active as Avon or whatever else that relies on you sort of door knocking. Um, You know, there are doors all around the world, so they knock on them and it works. Like there are communities of Jehovah's witnesses, I think, in every country in the world. But yeah, it's a bit random in Lebanon. And actually my dad's grandpa, father. I think we're, you know, one of the first ones in Lebanon. But
1: And did your mum convert or when she met your dad or was she already a convert before she met him?
0: No, she had already converted, but literally a year before they met. So she was converted by her cousin who happened to be a Jehovah's Witness. And she was 15. She was the first in her family to convert. And over the years after that, they all converted after her. They were Greek Orthodox and they went um, to be Jehovah's Witnesses.
1: Then they migrated to Australia. What kind of environment did they create at home once they were, had moved out to Western Sydney?
0: Well, I guess my father has, has got quite an authoritarian approach to his family. He worked a lot, you know, he worked like seven days a week. He was mostly a bit mixed when he was at home, so he could be quite short-tempered and angry and, you know, wanted everything his way and, you know, very much controlling of the house and my mum and the money and all of that stuff. But he was also very charismatic. He's got a good storytelling, funny sense of humour. He was good to be around, but then he had this also difficult dark side that we kind of all got to experience. So that was always a, a difficult thing. And and I think my mum really took... So my mum came to Australia not really even knowing where Australia was or how to speak a word of English. So, you know, she really had to transform her life when she got here and because she had young children, it took her a while before her language kind of kicked in. But even though she couldn't understand necessarily all of the content that was happening in the Jehovah's Witness environment, she would go there for community and that's what I think supported her when she would have been very lonely and away from her family and scared and all those things that I think immigrants feel when they move the other side of the world. When
1: the church started, it started making some pretty emphatic claims about the date of the end of the world yes. and those dates came and went. Was that spoken of in the family and did that cause some kind of confusion or distress within the family when those when those critical moments came and went?
0: Yeah, look, I wasn't around when that happened because they, they kind of stopped in the 70s. I think they cottoned on to the fact that if you don't put a date on it, you, you don't stuff up as as royally. So just, I think, two years before I was born, so probably my older siblings would have more of a memory of it, um, that they had estimated that the world was going to end in 1975. And a lot of people sold their houses, d- did a whole lot of dramatic things, thinking this is it, and then it didn't happen. So I think there was a bit of fallout in a religion after that. But like I say, they haven't really done that since. They they kind of allude to this is it, but they don't give us, you know, they don't give dates anymore because I just think they, they know better now.
1: So you've got older brothers who, as they grew up, they left the Jehovah's Witnesses. Yeah. What effect did that have on the family when they did that?
0: Well, possibly my eldest brother, I mean, he was the first to go, and there's 11 years difference between me and him, so... When he ultimately rebelled, I think he always really struggled to fit in the religion, always had uh, an eye out into the world, if you like, about other things he could be doing. And he really rebelled against my dad, who was probably at his worst and most controlling when, when my eldest brother was rebelling. And so there was a... My memory of it um, is a big, a big fight. I mean, there was a lot of tension in the house always. But it, it ultimately culminated in a big, a big fight. My dad kicked him out of the house, threw all his stuff out onto the, onto the, the front, and there was just a big thing that happened in, in my recollection. And I suppose what it, it didn't occur to me at the time, but, but my brother was 17, so he was very young to be thrown out. Um, and at that point, and I, I seem to have this vague memory of being called in to see my dad that night, you know, after all the dust had settled and and my brother had left, and and my dad said to me, "Look, he's no longer my son, but he's still your brother." And I don't know if I fully understood the what that meant at the time. I just remember him saying that, and then uh, then what that actually meant in the years that followed was that I just didn't see my eldest brother. He he'd sort of had to move out and move on with his life. And he, if he did ever come to the house and my dad was there, he would just literally shun him, like literally not even say hello or see, look at him or anything. So that created a lot of hurt, I think, for my mum mostly, and a division then in the family where we couldn't all be together, which would be what my mum ultimately always wanted.
1: So then your other brother left as well, and both your brothers moved to the UK. What prompted you? as a teenager, to reach out to them, Naomi?
0: Yeah, so, I mean, as it worked out, they they went over with their partners to the UK and I got to a point, so I had sort of done, you know, I tried to be the best Jehovah's Witness I could be. That's probably the best way to put it. I was preaching full-time and the whole time I knew I wasn't right. I thought maybe, you know, because I knew I was attracted to Girls and women, as I was growing up, I just knew it. I just thought it would a go away, <laughs> or B God would help me get over it. And what ultimately started to happen when I hit sort of 20 21, is I just felt miserable. you know I, I got to 21 and I thought okay i 'm stuck with it now i can't say it 's puberty or whatever else. <laughs> this is all the things that I was thinking it was and and this is who I am and I knew I wasn't drawn to any man that I was encountering. So while all my friends were off trying to pair off and get married, I just couldn't imagine that happening for me. And I started to think perhaps I was trans because I thought maybe I was a man trapped in a woman's body because in my world, everything was so binary. Only men were attracted to women, so I thought, maybe I'm a man.
1: All right, so if you're attracted to women, that meant, in your mind, you thought that something had gone wrong and you were actually a man under it all.
0: Yes, that's what I thought was happening.
1: Did you even know lesbians existed at that point, I wonder?
0: Not really. I certainly didn't know any. It's so simple, but at that time, it was so complicated, and I thought it was going to be massive. So I started telling everybody, well, not everybody. I did tell my sister, who I was closest to at the time. She's still a Jehovah's Witness now. And I was very close to her. I wasn't close to my brothers because obviously, you know, I'd been isolated from them having left. And so I just got to a point, I mean, I was sort of still in contact with one of my brothers more than the other. And I I felt very much like I wanted to end it all. I felt very much like, look, if I would have a better chance of, because Jehovah's Witnesses believe people come back from the dead after Armageddon, so... If you died before and you didn't, you know, you didn't. You were either a Jehovah's Witness or you haven't had a chance to learn about Jehovah's Witnesses. You would, you would be resurrected. So I thought maybe if I die now, I could just be resurrected into paradise, sort of shortcut it a little bit, knowing that I probably wouldn't make it.
1: <laughs> but suicide's a mortal, sin, mortal sin, isn't it? And so that would have presented you with another conundrum. I would have thought.
0: Exactly. It's honestly, it's like a dead end street. You're just like, what? What the hell am I supposed to do? And then I wrote to my brother a long email. It was in the middle of the night and I just told him everything on an email and he he called and then he wrote back and said, "Look, why don't I just pay for you to come over here? Just spend some time away from it all. Think think about what you want to do and then, you know, you do what you've got to do, but you can have some of that time and space because Jehovah's Witnesses, as they see you questioning, they they hone in on you, so they bombard you, they they tell you, they actively discourage you to spend time alone, because that's when the devil creeps into your mind. So if you do just need some time to think, it's not the best scenario to be in.
1: It sounds like your brother saved your life there,
0: Naomi. A hundred percent, no doubt about it because I don't know what else I would have done, because I didn't think I could continue, like, living a lie. I had sort of agreed to myself that I wasn't going to marry a man just to kind of make it, because I thought I can't do it. I just couldn't do it. So then I just thought, OK, so at the age of 20, I'm going to be a celibate, which is, which is, what I suppose, what nuns do uh, would have been a version of that, but um, in the Jehovah's Witness religion. So I just thought that was a bit depressing, which it is. So off I went to London.
1: This is Conversations with Richard Feidler.
0: To find out more, just head to abc.net.au slash
1: conversations. So you got this lovely message from your brother to come and stay with him in London for a while and think about whether you could stay within the faith and come to terms with who who you were. What was the goodbye at Sydney Airport like? Did the family come and wave you off?
0: Oh, yes, <laughs> they did. They did. So I had a bit of a turnout and my family were there and my closest friends were there. And I think because they sort of knew, they knew that I wasn't going to come back, but I was saying all the right things, that I was going to come back and that I would go to the meetings in, in England and all these things. I, I genuinely thought that's what I was going to do, but I think they kind of must have known better. And so it was almost like attending your own funeral. Truly, it was, it was so immense. I felt exhausted by the time I got on the flight. I just thought, oh my goodness, it, you know, but actually that is true for them. Like I look at my mum and her in her mind, by us not being Jehovah's Witnesses, we are going to die at I'm again. You know, when I first told her that I was, you know, leaving You know, she would cry every single time at some point during the conversation. Oh, so
1: she thought you were getting on the plane to hell, in other words.
0: I think they hoped not, but I think they knew that it would, yeah. I mean, they don't believe in hell, Jehovah's Witnesses, I should quickly say. They don't actually believe in a burning, fiery pit of eternal torture. Really? They believe in death. They just believe that you die and you no longer exist.
1: Oh, so the distinction then is... Jehovah's Witnesses, they rise up, so they have immortality, but everyone else dies, and that's That's it. That's right. So the stakes are incredibly high
0: then. Yes, they are. And certainly when I went to London and I went to a lesbian bar and discovered, I mean, it took a couple of goes, um, that I thought, oh, okay, maybe this is it. Maybe that's all it is. I can be a woman and be attracted to other women. It's kind of that simple, and it's not so mind-boggling And it's also not so hard and I just, I can just do that. I can just have a relationship with a woman which has felt to me like the most natural thing in the world.
1: Naomi, how much courage did it take for you to walk into a lesbian bar in
0: London? It takes um, vodka and it takes (laughs) my, my brother and his girlfriend coming. It takes, uh, you know, it, it took a bit more. I didn't just walk in by myself.
1: So so when you got to London, you told your brother, you said, I, I think I am same-sex attracted. And how did he respond once you told him that?
0: Well, both my brothers were there and um, I had actually told him I thought I was trans before that. And so we were kind of looking at what that would mean. And I think it was their idea to say, why don't you just, why don't you come along to this gay bar before we go down that path too much? And sure enough, that was the thing that helped. Their response o- always has been incredibly supportive. I mean, not even for a second did I feel any reluctance to talk to them about it. They've always been very open. And that process of kind of un unlearning all the doctrinal stuff, you know, I, I did that with the support of them and their partners and, you know, just starting to see what a normal life could look like.
1: And when you walked into that bar, did you feel like you'd found it another tribe, or was it just too, too soon for all that? I mean, you walked out of one tribe, and, but here was another one with its own codes of behaviour and uh, its own forms of communion, if you like, if that's the word exactly. for it. <laughs> How did it feel?
0: Intimidating, and I just did not, I did not find my tribe in that first time. That first time, I still felt like a Jehovah's Witness at a gay bar. It's horrific. <laughs> and you're like, what if Armageddon comes right this second? And I'm, I don't know, you know, six drinks in, this is it, I'm gone. And that's the other thing, is the whole fear of Armageddon did not go even after I had relationships and had left the religion officially. This is what I thought. I thought, I'm just going to live my best life. When Armageddon comes, I'm just going to die at Armageddon. You know, I gave it a red hot (laughs) go. So that actually took me a lot longer to deprogram some of that very deep-rooted belief system, um, even after I was living a life that was nothing like a Jehovah's Witness.
1: Was there a aha uh-huh moment? A moment when you thought, actually, I don't believe this anymore.
0: Um, maybe what it was is someone else was talking about something they believed, and of course, Jehovah's Witnesses, like every strict religion, believes everyone else is wrong, right, and that you're right. And then when you hear someone talk passionately about something that they thought was right, and you can just go, "That was that's rubbish," isn't it? Ultimately. And then for a minute I just thought, oh God, what I believe is rubbish. Actually it's all rubbish. Actually they're not the best people in the world. Actually in you know, all these things that I I'd thought is it's not actually true. But it happened after I really grappled with my own identity and my own sexuality. That that happened as a separate piece. That was it. It was like on one hand, how who who am I? Who do I wanna be? as a human being having relationships, and then separately it was who am I, what do I believe? And that's when I realised that so much of my thinking is already shaped by the religion. I would do this, I wouldn't do this, I would watch this film, I wouldn't listen to that sort of music. That was all because the religion told you what you could and couldn't do. So when I had my own freedom and I could do what I wanted... It, it was interesting to just watch what I was into, and you know, start to discover myself. And as part of that, I realised, gosh, you know, I've, I've certainly spent a lot of time reading a lot of rubbish that I don't believe anymore. So if this is not true, then then that's not true, and that means all of it's not true. You know, you kind of eventually you're like, there's nothing in it actually. When
1: people ascribe to any kind of fundamentalism, super fundamentalism, whether that's religious or political, they do have the comfort or the smugness even of thinking that i know something that the rest of you don't and then you lose that and and so did that kick away one of your major major life crutches that absolute certainty of this is the way it is and this is the way things are
0: not yes um so i'm i was not a doubting i was not doubting at all i was an amazing cult member and i still am you know i like even work now, you know, I jump on board, I, I drink the Kool-Aid, I'm like, you know, I will believe whatever is kind of there in front of me. I right, you'll join
1: the volleyball team, all that stuff. Yeah, you. right.
0: <laughs> exactly. So there's definitely a tendency for me to follow, I think. I feel stupid saying it, but it is what it is. Um, what it was, was it was kind of a like, thrust upon dis- decision that I had to make um, in that moment that I was wrong, that actually I was wrong. And all these people that were certain in my life, they were also wrong. And I didn't know you could be so wrong. I just didn't know that. I just thought, if you've done research, then you, you must be right. But then that's when you realise loads of people do research and loads of people think they're right. And on some of the topics that I felt certain, there isn't a right or a wrong. So that was a big realisation for me. It just is. There is no certainty. And on other things... Like evolution, you know, we're pretty happy that (laughs) that is exactly what happened. So we don't necessarily need to be always questioning some of the stuff that are, you know, turn out to be fat. But what it does, I think, for me now is I do have sympathy for people that get caught up in an ideology because even if you do get caught up in something, you can change your mind, you know? Like I always think people that are, you know, massively thinking, I don't know, anti-vax or something like this, where they've got their views. I don't know if I feel so passionately that they're so stupid or, you know, or anything like that. The way I feel is, well, that's where they're at right now. They may or may not wake up at some point and go, oh my God, that was a bit weird. Uh, you know, I went through that stage where I thought I knew best, or, you know, I listened to a few people, they turned out to be wrong. Uh, they turn out to be corrupt in some way, and they're, they're just duping me. Like, people do wake up out of that. So I would hate to just silence or cut off people that have a differing view because I I can see that you can change that view over time. I've had that experience.
1: As a young Jehovah's Witness, you're an outsider. Then you come out as a lesbian and you're another kind of an outsider, not, not yes. so profoundly outside, but, you know, you're still a bit of an, an outsider. That's your tribulation, isn't it? Isn't that really the tribulation? And you've yes. been part of two outsider groups to some degree. It is a tribulation, but the upside of all this can be, can be, that you don't need a midlife crisis to figure out who you really are. You've sort of been through that ordeal.
0: Yes, so true. I mean, of course, we we reposition everything in our heads, don't we? Like when something happens to us, we find a way to to find peace with it, I think. I was lucky. I was lucky in the sense that I had an, an extra level of differentiation from even being in a religion to want to leave it, you know, to not be accepted in it. It worries me that I could have stayed if I had just been straight. I think it was a blessing that it turned out that I had a real reason and a real momentum to kind of get up and leave it. Because for me, it was such an in, 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 inherent thing that I couldn't change. You know how you're saying uh, you thought the world was going to end in a nuclear apocalypse? When you sort of realise that it's not, I think you can have an a epiphany in that moment. So, for me, I just was like, oh, my God. So, that means there's no Armageddon.
1: The world's a great but, big garden.
0: I know. So, then you're like, so what am yeah. I doing? What have I been doing? Go and play in the garden. <laughs> exactly. Why am I inside? Mm. Like, it. I need to go and, and explore. I need to crack on with this life. And I was lucky because I woke up when I was young, but I know now, like I, I do some work with support groups for people leaving religions. And when you get someone who's in their 50s or 60s and they've believed that their whole lives and they've brought up families in that belief system and they suddenly wake up and they're like, what am I going to do? I've got no super. I've got no career. I find that thought. Absolutely horrific. And I think that is the is that they're the people that really, they're the consequences of believing a very, you know, high control religion where the, they do not set you up to have a, a fulfilling life. And it's so incredibly sad. I just find it like horrific.
1: So there had to come a moment though, Naomi, when you had to face the music and tell your parents that you had been playing in a garden and you'd yeah. been out there in the world <laughs> drinking beers with girls in Lady bars. Garden, Lady garden, Lady garden. And that you were no longer a Jehovah's Witness. How did that go and how, how did you do that?
0: Well, I mean, um, it went somewhat poorly. Um, actually, I don't know if I actually told my mum. I think I told my sister who told my mum, but she knew and then we talked about it. Um, and it was for her, it, you know, it literally was like me telling her I had a terminal illness. I, I can't explain it any other way. That was how happy she was about it for me. Did you buy into
1: that? Did you feel shame, even though you know you shouldn't have felt shame? Did you feel shame anyway?
0: Oh, yeah, and for a long time.
1: Was it shame about who you were or shame because you'd upset your mum so much?
0: It was kind of both. The shame about who I was was there, even before I told um, my mum. So the shame about who I was took a while because I actually forming a sexual relationship with someone is hard isn't it like you know at at first well I'm sure it isn't hard but uh, you know that those sort of early years you're just sort of discovering yourself well for me the whole time I just thought that this was the ultimate disgusting thing as far as religion my religion was concerned as far as God was concerned I just felt I was really depraved in some way so I didn't feel that comfortable in it at first and so then you add to that my mum's view of it and of course I look at everything through that lens and I was not proud I remember thinking about gay pride and I was like when am I ever going to feel gay pride like how do people feel proud I, I, I would say I accept <laughs> but I didn't feel proud that's like another level and so that took me time it did take me a few years to kind of get to that point my dad was a bit different i I did wait until I came back to Sydney for a visit to tell my dad and I because I wanted to tell him to his face because he had fights with both my brothers and then he shunned them like there was this big dramatic moment and I'm not saying that um, I I wanted a dramatic moment but I kind of think I did I wanted to have a fight about it (laughs) and so when I went round I, I had dinner with him he was on his own my mom was out and I I I said to him you know I've I've met someone and and I said, you know how low I was before I left, but I'm much happier now, and and I've met someone, and this is how it how it is. And he said, is it a woman? And I said, yes. Wow! <laughs> I'm not expecting him to know that. I know. And then he said, well, you know what I think about it. I think it's disgusting. I think you know, and just sort of very calmly said that. And I said, look, I know, I know that's how you feel about it, but I just wanted you to know and I wanted to tell you. So, you know, I've told you. And then we carried on with dinner and he said goodbye and I left. And I remember at the time going, unbelievable, that went so well. I can't believe how well that went. And um, by the time I come around again to see them, he was a bit more distant. And then the next time he wasn't, uh, you know, he would just say hello and he would kind of go and then. I think eventually, by the time I was ringing um, the house, he would, he was shunning me as well. But it seemed to me that he couldn't quite bring himself to have a fight about it. He just he just faded out um, and, and did it that way, which I was a bit annoyed about, I have to say.
1: Are there aspects of being a Jehovah's Witness that you miss?
0: Um, sure. I mean, I, I, I suppose I miss the certainty of thinking that I know because I just feel the whole time now I don't ever know anything with certainty. <laughs> Um, because things change. But even though I miss that, I don't really miss it. I just miss not having to think about everything. Every single time something happens, I have to think, you know, what do I think about that? What do we, you know, what's the truth? I miss the the simpleness of it. Everything's so black and white, you just kind of go along with it. You don't have these moral decisions to take all the time. And And I miss some of the people, although one of the hardest things about leaving something like that is the realisation that those people have only really loved you conditionally. And it's not their fault, but that is the truth. I mean, they cannot love you unconditionally because that means loving you beyond their beliefs, and they don't. They love their belief.
1: What do you make, then, of what your dad said and did? Like, he didn't kick you out. Like, he said horrible things, you know, but he didn't kick you out. What's, What's going on there, do you think?
0: I don't know. I think he liked that I told him directly. And because my mum wasn't there, sometimes I think he performs for her. If she's not there, then who's he, who's he doing it for? What's he arguing with me for? Sometimes I think he uses us to hurt her. And in this particular opportunity, you know, he didn't have the opportunity to do that. So I don't think he knew how to totally handle it.
1: And how are things now?
0: Yeah, things are weird now because... Uh, I. So he didn't really talk to me, but I lived overseas then for like 11 years so I didn't really get to see him much during that time. Then I came back to Sydney, and again, he, you know, he still wasn't home when I came over, or, you know, I only really saw him once in about eight years, and then I didn't see him again much after that, because I would meet my mum outside the house. And then, of course, COVID hit, didn't it? And we had that toilet paper shortage. I'm really sad that this is the story, but it is <laughs> what it is. And I happened to get some toilet paper where I was and I knew mum and dad were running low. So I messaged mum and I said, look, I can bring it round. It was lockdown, right? So everyone was at home. But oh, me and my 18-pack of three-fly Kleenex just I thought, oh, so I'm driving down to see them. And I, I don't often come to the house because I was seeing mum out of the house and so I knocked on the door and I thought he's definitely going to be home this time so there's no avoiding it it is what it is I tend to just ignore him and he'll ignore me and that's what it'll be but sure enough mum opened the door and there I was with the toilet paper and as I walked in dad stood up and said hello and I was like hello and I mean this is (laughs) anyway And I had just been overseas for a year on a secondment, so I'd been living in London. And when I walked in, he said to me, well, I guess you haven't been doing much exercise while you're in London. (laughs) They were his first lines, Richard, to me. That was the first thing he said to me after 20, maybe 22 years, actually.
1: It's better than, like, you know, you're going to die in the tribulations and, you know, (laughs) saying something like, I don't like your hair, is is, is a step up from that, isn't it? I mean...
0: (laughs) It's a bit. (laughs) I know. I just love that fat shaming was the first thing he could, uh, he could think of uh, to say. Well,
1: it's like affection. It's um, in <laughs> it his is. mind, uh, I suppose, yes.
0: <laughs> it's a form of affection. Mm. I took it. I laughed. I just I just thought this is going to make fantastic stand-up material, so thank you. But um, <laughs> I just couldn't believe that he was doing that. And then not just that. He then just engaged in conversation as if I had never left, as if as if, you know, how are things, you know, show me around the garden. Absolutely nothing, like nothing had happened. And part of me thinks, I think he might be slightly losing his um, marbles uh, somewhere along the way. Maybe like, gaining them. Yes, maybe <laughs> gaining them. Oh, I had not thought. So maybe he is having some transformation in his old age, but something has happened and he he's sort of now he'll ring me, which, you know, I had my first phone call from my dad on my mobile in my 40s. Weird. Um, And he'll say, come over, or, you know, he he definitely is wanting to engage. I I don't really know why, or I have not asked about anything. I, I won't bring it up. I just, I'm just kind of enjoying the fact that I can have a somewhat normal encounter with my parents, go to the house, especially as they're getting older. I feel like I can help out. I'm the one that lives nearest to them, so I can actually be a practical help, but at least I can do that now without having this weird shunning environment.
1: So is this just civility, or is it warmer than that?
0: I think for him, it's a bit warmer than that. I I wonder where he's at mentally at the moment, whether he's had some regrets. He doesn't speak to three, or hadn't been speaking to three out of four of his children. He had no one really around. I mean, the, the pandemic does crazy things to people, I think maybe it's occurred to him he's lonely, you know, and 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 what it, you know, what has he built in his life that he can enjoy now? That is, in terms of relationships, very little.
1: Isn't there anything in the faith that tells him that he should love people anyway? I mean, that's that's pretty a fundamental tenet yeah. of Christianity is that is that you should love people no matter what. There,
0: there is that element, and I think that's my mum. I think if I was going to say. What is the the good side of the religion and the bad side? I can literally see that in both my parents. My mum is that. My mum loved the whole time. She was sad, but that's because she loved and that's what she believes. She never stopped talking to me and she never has my brothers either. So she's kind of rebellious a little bit in terms of her religion because she sees that family connection is above that. But I know she struggles with it and I think she's made to feel a little bit bad about it, but she... She still does it. You know, I do like that she's kind of a bit rebellious in that way, but it's all about love for her, that's all. With my dad, I think he's more black and white.
1: So now you work as a stand-up comedian.
0: I don't know about work. Do you get paid to work? Sorry, no, you don't
1: work. Sorry, I'll say that again. You you perform as a stand-up comedian. (laughs) Thank you. That's better. Uh, And and do you talk about this in your show?
0: Yeah. I did a a festival show, which was a little bit about the kind of coming out um, story and leaving the religion story. But the stand-up I do now, even for like short spots, I take a Bible up on stage. It's not for everyone, but a lot of people, even that are religious, find it okay. And we might do a Bible story together. And sometimes the stories are ones that people already know, but maybe they don't know what happened before or after that particular part of the story. I mean, Lot is a really uh, good example of that, where... You know, you sort of know about Lot's wife and how she was turning into a pillar of salt, but you don't really know what happened after. And it's um, it's like part two of a horrific film when you get into the guts of that.
1: And what happens when you tell your story on stage and you expose it to laughter?
0: Yeah, I, I feel good. Um, I feel, I, I call it like unpreaching. I feel like I spent so long preaching and saying how sacred how sacred this book is. And in that moment, I feel like the book itself. I, I I don't poo-poo the book. I don't poo-poo people that believe it. But what I try and do is just say, hey, do you know this is in it? Okay, that's all. That's all I have to say. <laughs> Goodbye. Uh, and it's okay, because I think we're allowed to be irreverent about anything. I don't think anything uh, should not be mocked if it's done with empathy. So I never... Yeah, I never am horrible to people that, that maybe believe it. I've, have not had, like, I've had quite religious friends come and they feel comfortable with the material, so it's not really aggressive. It's just a gentle, poking fun. And a lot of the humour is in the, the literature itself. I don't... I mean, I, I position it in a particular way, but, you know, I'm not really laughing, ha-ha,
1: this. Here's the big, big, big pretentious question at the end of the interview... Naomi, are you ready for this? Okay. I don't know. So, so, you know, comedians, there's that really boring cliche, oh, nothing's sacred for that person. Um, when in fact, the truth is, there's tons of stuff that's sacred to comedians. I know this from first-hand yeah. experience. Yeah. Are there things that are still sacred to you? Not in the sense of like, oh, this is fundamentally true and everything else is false, but in the sense of th- this is fundamentally beautiful. Are there things like that that are still sacred to you in that way?
0: I think for me, the thing that, remains sacred is the people so what i mean is i will accept anyone who believes anything as a person i i think we're allowed to and we should continue to poke fun at and pick at uh, ideology but never the people i think you know i've seen i've seen priests retract on their thoughts and you know really spend their whole life learning something and deciding actually that's not what I think anymore I I think if you have that then I just don't see that we should attack the person I think always attack the ideology or the thing but not the person so that's sacred I would never attack a person on stage for thinking what they think no
1: See, I draw the line at people who put chicken on a pizza, Naomi. (laughs) What about pineapple? Pineapple's fine. It's Australia. It's what we do in this country. It's a tradition and you can't. But chicken, no.
0: (laughs) That should go in a kebab. I'm with you. Exactly.
1: Tandoori chicken does not belong in it. It goes into a kebab or anything else, but (laughs) not on a pizza. That's just me. Yogurt as well, dear.
0: (laughs) Yes, you're right. You're right. There's no excuse for that. That's
1: right. Preach against those people. Naomi, I've really loved talking to you. Thank you so much.
0: And you. Thank you, Richard. It's been great.
1: Naomi Mura is a comedian who performs, not works, performs all around Australia. I'm Richard Feidler. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to a podcast of Conversations with Richard Feidler. For more Conversations interviews, please go to the website, abc.net.au slash conversations.